Hundreds of thousands of Florida students have not been in a classroom in nearly a year. They've been learning through a screen or not showing up for classes at all because of the pandemic. Last month, tens of thousands of parents got letters from Florida school district leaders practically begging them to send their kids back to school. For so many students, learning remotely just wasn't working, and they were falling behind, failing. The pandemic has been hard on nearly everyone, but it's worse for those who were already at a disadvantage. This is Class of COVID-19, an education crisis for Florida's vulnerable students. I'm Jessica Bakeman. We do have some children that haven't shown up. I almost think that it's too late for the seniors. We need more people. The resources have always been limited, but now they're non-existent. This is a special production from Florida Public Media. After the news. This is Class of COVID-19, an education crisis for Florida's vulnerable students. I'm Jessica Bakeman, the education reporter for WLRN in South Florida, and your host for this special program bringing together reporting from public media journalists around the state. We'll explore how the pandemic has made things even worse for students who already faced some of the biggest obstacles to succeeding in school. And we'll hear from parents, teachers, people who are closest to students about what they need to help kids recover. Something you're going to hear a lot in the next hour is that these problems aren't new. Systemic racism, unequal access to technology, mental health care, food— Many Floridians have been living like this since before the pandemic, on the edge, bracing for that crisis that could knock them off. And this is it. This is the crisis. We start in Hillsborough County with some of the most vulnerable students in Florida, the children of the people who put food on our tables, children who themselves often work at farms while trying to get through school. I started working with my mom in We would get up at maybe like 6 a.m., be there by 7. We were picking eggplant. Evie is undocumented. We're using just her initials to protect her identity. It was extremely difficult. Sometimes they yell at you. Sometimes if you do things that are not right, if you're not fast enough. Evie was a high school senior and on track to graduate when her mom brought her to Florida from Louisiana a couple years ago. But she couldn't transfer all her school credits when she moved. And then she was working in the fields and helping to take care of her family, all while trying to study for an exam that would earn her a diploma. She failed it a couple times. When the pandemic hit, Evie became responsible for her young sister. She just turned four. Due to this whole COVID, we were not able to put her in a daycare. The Constitution guarantees a free public education to all students, regardless of immigration status. More than 50 years ago, the federal government started a program to help the children of migrant farm workers stay in school. A tutor from the Hillsborough County Migrant Education Program stepped in to help Evie finally get her diploma. I'm so completely grateful for her because if it wasn't for her, I probably wouldn't even have anything, so... Carrie Sheridan from WUSF in Tampa has spent some time over the past year with the women whose job it is to search for migrant farm workers' children and to try to convince their families to send them to school. COVID-19 has made their job much harder, in part because it's made the kids harder to find. 
Grace Rosa and Ines Cologne describe what they do as part sales, part detective work, and part ministry. They're looking for migrant children who might not be in school but should be. More than a year ago, they let me go on a ride along with them. Thanks for letting me come along. We climbed into their white SUV with the Hillsborough County Schools logo on the side and drove around side streets near the strawberry fields east of Tampa. It was December 2019. We turned into an area with lots of old trailers. We saw blankets covering most of the windows and kid-sized clothes hanging on laundry lines. We found so many kids at the beginning of the school year there. Oh, really? That were not in school. Rosa and Cologne say they encountered about 20 children in this trailer park during an earlier recruiting trip. The kids were from Guatemala, and they'd been here for a couple of months. This is Cologne. And we pulled up, and there were kids just running everywhere, and they would run out and run back in. And <laughs> Cologne says the parents just didn't know how to get their kids into school. The migrant education team helped them get vaccinations and fill out paperwork. They assured them that school was a safe place for their kids. Hola. Two men were standing outside a trailer. We stopped, and Cologne rolled down the window. She asked if they have any children. They said no, just four adult men living in one trailer. This is what their work looked like under the best of conditions. It was before the pandemic put everyone on edge, before they had to add masks and social distancing. Rosa and Cologne work for the Migrant Education Program. It was born from a 1960 documentary produced by the renowned journalist Edward R. Murrow. It aired the day after Thanksgiving. America watched on their televisions how the nation's migrant farm workers endured extreme poverty and harsh working conditions. Workers in the sweatshops of the soil, the harvest of shame. At that time, many farm workers were American citizens who would move around the country wherever there were crops to be harvested. They were poor, often unable to read and write, and would take their children into the fields to work with them. Everyone who knows anything about this situation agrees that the best hope for the future of the migrants lies in the education of their children. But for the children of migrants, education is not easy to come by. Several years later, in 1966, Congress created the Migrant Education Program to make sure children of farm workers went to school and got extra tutoring. The program still exists today, although most farm workers now come from Mexico and Central America. You know, you may be doing fractions in Florida, but when you move to North Carolina, they're doing decimals. Anne Cranston Jingris is director of the Center for Migrant Education at the University of South Florida. She says the extra tutoring provided by the Migrant Education Program tries to bridge that gap. The government recognized that children from migrant backgrounds were dropping out of school at alarming rates. In fact, for many years, they were called the most disadvantaged group of students in the United States. Two decades ago, the United States counted nearly 900,000 migrant children. That's down two-thirds as of the latest count in 2019. Shifting immigration patterns and changes in the agriculture business partly explain the decline in migrant students. More farms now hire foreign workers to come in on special short-term H-2A visas. These workers rarely bring their families. Another factor, during the Trump administration, undocumented parents were scared of being deported. Build that wall. 
build that wall. The decision comes as the president kicks off his re-election bid with the promise of deporting millions of undocumented immigrants. Carol Mayo heads the Migrant Education Program in Hillsborough County. She told me last year that convincing undocumented parents to feel safe about sending their kids to school was increasingly hard. They just don't want their name on anything for fear of being deported or found or whatever it is. So I think that's why our numbers have gone down. That was before schools shut down in March and children started learning from home in an effort to slow the spread of COVID-19. The number of students from migrant farm worker families enrolled in Hillsborough County Public Schools has been in decline for the past five years. But compared to this time last year, the program has lost nearly 300 students. It's larger. It's larger than expected. I talked to Mayo again in December. She says it's hard to say exactly how much of this year's decline is due to the coronavirus. But she says COVID-19 outbreaks in the migrant community during the summer surge made many fearful of sending their children back when school buildings reopened for in-person classes in the fall. In the summertime, these migrant farmers and workers that were either still working or didn't travel because of the pandemic and they all live in the same neighborhoods, they, there was a big breakout of illness, actually COVID, parents getting infected with COVID. And so they themselves experienced the, the sickness. And so when school started, they were truly afraid to send their children to school. Mayo says the pandemic pushed this already vulnerable community to the edge. They don't have the transportation. They don't have health care. They have to make appointments and or get up at the crack of dawn and go wait in line to get their child seen at the health department. Sometimes parents would ask for a ride to take children to the doctor, which normally the migrant education team would have done willingly. But now they can't due to district-wide coronavirus precautions. This past December, I met up again with the ladies from the Hillsborough School's migrant education team, Grace Rosa and Ines Cologne. It had been almost a year since I saw them. Outside their offices in Plant City, we all wear masks and stand six feet apart. How did things change in March for you? It changed uh, quite a bit, quickly. Cologne tells me at first, in-person contact was no longer allowed. Things they often did in the past, like driving families to doctor's appointments or meeting newly arrived farm workers to help them fill out school registration, were off limits. Rosa says she had to rely on phone calls, text messages, and WhatsApp to reach people. To me, the hardest part is like the no contact with people. It's really hard when it, it's so different to interview somebody over the phone than to be there with them because sometimes they're not sure of the dates when they got here as opposed to if I was in front of them. I can pull out a calendar and say, well, did you come on a Sunday? Did you come midweek? Those details are important because each time a child moves, that begins a window of eligibility for migrant education services lasting three years. Rosa and Cologne used to visit the local farmer's market once a week to look for school-aged children to enroll, but realized that was too risky now because hardly anyone was wearing masks. Being unable to do that kind of in-person detective work, Cologne says finding children has been really difficult. You know, we do have some children that haven't shown up. We don't know if they're here. We don't know if if they uh, have left. They haven't quite surfaced anywhere. So 
but we're working hard to find some. Earlier during the pandemic, Rosa and Cologne would drive a van equipped with Wi-Fi and park it for hours near a migrant encampment so children could connect to online school lessons. They also began delivering food from local pantries and charities to help get families through. Over time, recruiters like Rosa and Cologne have been able to resume some in-person visits. On this day, one of their co-workers, known as an advocate, tells them a mom with four kids called that morning to say she needed help. Here, Cologne is talking about one of the woman's kids, her son, who attends a public middle school in Tampa. Can you please get a social worker to help him because he's a little traumatized because um, they just deported his dad. We go inside. The mom is 33 and is from Mexico. She picks strawberries and chili peppers, and she's undocumented, so we agreed not to use her name. Cologne sits down next to her. She says her husband was deported eight days ago. Her four children range from elementary to high school. She says she hopes the migrant education workers can help her 10-year-old son stay on task in school. And she says her oldest son is telling her that he's the man of the house now. But she says no, she's the mom, she will work. He must continue going to school. She says she finished up to the sixth grade herself. Education for her kids is just too important to give up on. But now she's alone, and if a COVID-19 outbreak closes her kids' schools, even for a short time, she doesn't know how she'll manage. She says it was very difficult when they closed the schools because of the coronavirus last spring. She has no Internet at her house, and she needed to be there to make sure the kids were doing what they needed to do. She says she needs to work, and she can't leave these four children here by themselves. Cologne puts a hand on her back and rubs it gently to console her. As the woman opens up more, Cologne learns about the trauma she's been experiencing at home. We step outside to leave. Cologne tells us the woman said her husband had been beating her. He, he, he hit her, you know, since violence in the home. And so she had to call the police on him. And Her husband had already faced a charge of battery and tampering with a witness in early 2020. This time, immigration came and took him away. Rosa and Cologne discuss what they can do. I'll talk with the advocates at the schools, and, and uh, they can go ahead and reach out to their social workers. Their social workers are going to need to. They're going to need to yeah, give her some sort of therapy, too, for the kids, because yeah. that's affecting the kids. Yes, she is. She said it is. It isn't their job to get these kids into therapy, but Rosa and Cologne want to make sure they do all they can to help them stay in school. Many teenagers and farmworker families end up leaving school before they graduate to work. And there's a bigger picture. When fewer children enroll in the migrant education program, there's less federal money to help them. That means cuts in staff. Seven years ago, the Hillsborough County migrant team had eight full-time recruiters. Now they can only afford five. We need more people because the needs of the families are, are so much greater now. Carol Mayo, the head of the Hillsborough Migrant Education Program, says they need more funding. She says she'd also like people to focus less on things like test scores, school grades, or dropout rates. I think that we just need to like revisit again 
what these programs were meant to be when they were first implemented. The whole reason for the Migrant Education Program is to try to make sure all children, regardless of where they come from, can get a free public education. It's their constitutional right. I'm Carrie Sheridan in Tampa. You're listening to Class of COVID-19 from Florida Public Media. Coming up next, for some students, the coronavirus adds another layer of stress to problems that were already getting in the way of school. I've lost so much of my motivation and my work ethic and my ability to sit down and like complete a task or study for a test. And I think that will definitely hurt the entire generation of students. I'm Jessica Bakeman. Stay with us. We're back with Class of COVID-19, an education crisis for Florida's vulnerable students from Florida Public Media. I'm Jessica Bakeman. During a meeting in late January, Broward County School Superintendent Robert Runcie warned school board members failing grades are up, chronic absences are up. Most alarming is that we've identified about 59,000 students who are not making adequate academic progress as they are struggling academically and socially and emotionally. This is also a significant equity issue as 84% of the students who are struggling and not making adequate academic progress are black and Hispanic. Two thirds are low income, a quarter have disabilities. The vast majority of those students are showing up for class. But since the start of the pandemic, nearly 800 students in Broward, the state's second largest school district, have completely stopped going to school. That's hundreds of students who haven't logged on to online classes or shown up in person. Veronica Zaragovia of WLRN reports from Fort Lauderdale on the Broward district's efforts to get students learning again. Why did I choose to become a school social worker? It is to help prior to coming... Lilia Francois has been a social worker with Broward County Schools for more than two decades. But that's not where she started her career. I was really tired of seeing young kids coming to jail, and it wasn't juvenile, but they were being tried as adults. Francois used to be a corrections counselor in Miami-Dade County. She knows students who don't graduate from high school have a harder time finding well-paying, stable jobs. And at times, joblessness can lead to run-ins with the law. So that's my why. Even if I prevent one kid from going into that system, I think it makes an impact, maybe a little. To do that, Francois goes out looking for students. When she gets into the car, you know her school has tried everything else. The teacher tried calling, then the guidance counselor, maybe family members or classmates know where the student is, when none of that works. So that's where we have to hit the pavement and go to the homes and knock on those doors to see if the kids, and it's also a wellness check. We want to make sure that they're okay. So that's, One day that's, in early December, Francois hits the pavement to knock on Maria's door. We're not using her last name or her daughter's to protect the family's privacy. Maria has been struggling to find a stable job and housing. Francois actually went to a different house first, only to find out the family no longer lived there. 
Maria's daughter, Marjorie, should be in 10th grade. She hasn't been to class, in person or online, in about nine months. Maria says Marjorie has not had consistent access to the Internet or a laptop. That's why I come in. Yeah, that's where she comes in. That's why I come in. Francois hands Marjorie a computer. Standing in the doorway of the family's home, they go over Marjorie's class schedule and how to use the online learning system. If you're interested in that, we have a lot of clubs and they're doing things online. So you still can participate in after-school activities while you're home. After Francois gives Marjorie all the technical things she needs, she adds a pep talk. You're starting fresh, whatever happened last quarter, today is a brand new day for you, okay? And we're here, you see all of these people who are in your corner and they want you to succeed, okay? Marjorie's expression changes. She seems hopeful. It's exciting because, like, you know, I could get start school again, finish high school. More than a month later, Francois told me she's still trying to get Marjorie back in school. But as of late January, she hadn't shown up. Francois says this is an extreme case. I have to say that is a unique case. Um, That has not been the situation where kids have not logged in since March. Um, We're not sure where the breakdown happened because I know the schools and the... She says recently she visited 18 homes in three days. I'm Veronica Saragovia in Fort Lauderdale. Melissa Harmon, David Diaz, and Sergio Figuera with South Florida PBS contributed reporting for that story. You're listening to Class of COVID-19 from Florida Public Media. Public education in the Florida Keys is a geographic challenge. The district has 16 schools spread out over 106 miles. During the pandemic, schools have been a primary source of food for families, some of whom are on the brink of going hungry. And on an island chain, a body of water can stand between families and meal distributions. So the school district has been packing up food for the kids and sending it home. Nancy Klingener reports from WLRN's Southernmost Bureau in Key West. It's dismissal time at Horace O'Brien School in Key West. Lamisha Portier works in food services at the pre-K through 8th grade school. It's got just over 1,000 students from families from a mix of income levels. Portier is standing with a cart loaded with bags of food for kids to grab on their way home. Principal Denise Santiago asks what's on the menu today. Obviously milk and juice. Yeah, we got cereal, Uh milk, juice, and supper. And supper. And what is supper for tonight? Tonight's supper is tacos, rice and beans, and meat. So they've got dinner for tonight, and then they've got breakfast Breakfast for um, tomorrow. For tomorrow, yep. These bags are for elementary school students who go to class every day. The next day's bags will be larger because they have to last for the weekend. Friday bags, we put about four or five breakfast, and then like three lunch and supper. Mm -hmm. Portier is a former student at Horace O'Brien. Now she works here. Santiago went to school here, too, and she spent her whole career here. She became principal last year. How are you? We spoke on Zoom before she invited me to see the school's food distribution in action. Does it feel weird to you that this is such a major 
sort of part of your job now, not curriculum or other things that you might think of as education, but just like making sure these kids, you know, are fed and and have the nutrition and the energy they need for education. it, It truly is not something new. It is something that I feel like has always been a challenge for us having been at the same school, the same, um, you know, clientele of, of children that, that come to our school. So the need has always been there, but it is a greater need. And it is something that um, we do discuss more, I would say now. Do you have any sense of how much that food need has increased because of the pandemic? You said you figured it was about like a quarter of the kids taking it home for the breaks now, right? I believe the need is greater, but I do feel that it's it's become a conversation. It's become a, a norm. So to talk about it isn't as concerning to the students. People are very proud. Families are proud. And of course, students are proud. And especially when you get into the, the adolescent ages of middle school, you know, you don't sometimes hear as loudly the, the need. Santiago says the pandemic has made it harder for families to afford food. But, she says, COVID-19 has brought new attention to the problem, made it easier to talk about. It's also brought new solutions, like the backpack program that sends food home with kids on weekends and holidays. And when campuses first closed last spring because of the coronavirus, drivers delivered meals along school bus routes. I'm Nancy Klingener in Key West. This is Class of COVID-19 from Florida Public Media. We're looking at how the pandemic has affected education in our state, especially for the students who were already at a disadvantage. You can find all of these stories and much more at classofcovid.org. I'm Jessica Bakeman. Last summer, even as Florida was experiencing a surge of new coronavirus cases, Republican Governor Ron DeSantis demanded that families have the option to send their kids to school in person. It was not an especially popular decision at the time. But since then, public health experts and education leaders around the country have come to agree. The admittedly limited evidence we have tells us the virus is not spreading widely in schools and the consequences of closures are becoming dire. We understood the huge risk and the huge negative consequences of shutting the schoolhouse door indefinitely on all our students. That was from late January, when DeSantis announced his budget proposal for next fiscal year. He wants to increase funding for public education. Every school district in Florida is now giving families that choice, face-to-face or remote classes. More than halfway through the school year, tens of thousands of students are still learning from home. And national surveys have exposed racial and economic disparities in who's going to school and who's not. As Amy Green of WMFE in Orlando reports, many of the students still learning online are the ones with the most to lose. Take Osceola County, for example, a richly diverse district with a large Puerto Rican population. Staggering theme park layoffs have pushed the unemployment rate to near 9 percent, the highest in the whole state of Florida. More than a third of students there are going to school online. Superintendent Deborah Pace says kids who are learning from home are absent more. We'll have a child say, well, I'm going to have to sign off now, miss, because it's time for us to go to the grocery store. Or I have to sign off now, miss, because I'm helping my younger sibling with his math work. Pace echoes the fears of experts across the country that the pandemic not only is laying bare pre-existing learning disparities, it's exacerbating them, potentially setting up a generation of the most vulnerable children for even more challenges in the future. 
She says many of the virtual students need the most support, like children for whom English is not spoken at home or is a second language, and special education students. The slide is real for our black children, for our Hispanic children, for our ELL and ESE students. Black and Latino people have been hit harder by the pandemic. Systemic racism and inequities in healthcare have meant people of color are more likely to be hospitalized and die of COVID-19. The disease has claimed more than 25,000 lives in Florida. Parents are afraid. They fear getting too sick to work. Some don't have health insurance. In multi-generational households, Parents worry about their children bringing home the virus to older relatives. I'm terrified of losing one of my kids due to the pandemic, due to coronavirus. So many people have died from this virus, and I didn't want that for me or my children. Bathsheba is black, and she has two school-aged children who have been learning from home since last March. Her daughter, Gabrielle, is a seventh grader at a middle school in Orlando. We're not using their last names to protect their privacy. Gabrielle says some teachers hold classes on Microsoft Teams, while others use a similar Zoom-style app called Big Blue Button. She finds navigating between the two confusing. Even asking a question is hard. I either have to turn on my mic or type it in the chat, and they're usually screen sharing and they're not on the page. Her home life adds to the challenges of virtual learning. The family is facing the threat of eviction, and Gabrielle and her older sister have been splitting their time between their mother's place and their grandmother's. Bathsheba says she's not a math expert. I don't know nothing about no fractions. <laughs> Neither do I, but I still have and, to do one. And integers? What? Gabrielle's attendance and grades have suffered so much that her teacher, mother, and grandmother now all agree it's time for her to go back to campus. Gabrielle is nervous. She feels behind. Her mother says she'll have to try hard. You're going to have to catch up. You yeah, have to I work know. harder now to catch up because of the fact that you've fallen so far behind. At least now when Gabrielle speaks up to ask a question, she won't have to unmute herself first. I'm Amy Green in Orlando. Steve Mort of WUCF contributed reporting for that story. You're listening to Class of COVID-19, an education crisis for Florida's vulnerable students. From Florida Public Media, I'm Jessica Bakeman. We know that the pandemic's toll has been uneven. Black people have borne a disproportionate share of both the illness and the economic crisis. WLRN's Wilkin Brutus has been reporting on how all of this has affected students at Florida's historically Black colleges and universities. Hey, Wilkin. Hey, Jessica. Black Floridians have contracted COVID-19 at higher rates than white people in the state. And Black people have accounted for about 17 percent of Florida's coronavirus deaths. Can you give us some context on why generally Black people are at greater risk? Sure. Uh, Because of systemic racism and historical inequities and access to quality health care, black people in the United States are more likely to suffer from underlying medical conditions that result in severe cases of COVID-19. And black workers are also more likely to have jobs that expose them to the virus, like in hospitals or grocery stores. Right. So what does all that mean for black college students? 
Well, between the pandemic and the racial justice protest, this last year has been full of sickness, grief, uh, family obligations and uncertainty. And that's a lot to carry on top of a full course load. I spoke with Xavier McClinton about that balancing act. He's the student government president at Florida A&M University in Tallahassee, and he's studying economics. Anytime I get too stressed out about things or get too down on the bottom, I, I'll either call my dad or I'll call a friend of mine and just, just find ways to vent to him. Trying to internalize things never works and it never helps. Um, I've even gone to a counseling session or two to verbalize some of the things that I'm feeling and expressing. Um, and it's been good to know that I'm not alone in that aspect. He certainly is not alone. Nope, but he's doing exactly what he should be, according to Jason Anthony Prendergast. I spoke with him as well. He's the counseling director at Florida Memorial University, and he says it's really important for black college students to find healthy ways to express themselves and grieve if they have to. Florida Memorial is South Florida's only HBCU, historically black college or university. It's in Miami Gardens. About 1,100 students go there, and two-thirds are black. There was a student who uh, was, you know, really depressed, was brought into the office after a uh, suicide attempt. And when I got to speak to them, I found out that, you know, he lost his family, pretty much uh, all of his family to COVID. And he's he's not the family's not here. So not being able to, you know, attend funeral and, and just grieving by himself really just broke my heart. It's just really unfortunate that a lot of students are having to deal with the reality that COVID has taken their loved ones. So many students just say, I feel lost. I've talked to straight A students who, after this year, they're not straight A students anymore. You know, their grades have fallen. So I think the isolation, the, the virtual learning, everything else that's going on has taken its effect on, on every student in some way. Has there been a great demand for counseling services during the pandemic and racial justice protests? And if so, how is the counseling center handling that demand? Now, I am the only counselor, full-time counselor here on campus. However, we just uh, onboarded a, a program which will allow all of our students to have counseling, you know, right through their phones. After they download an app, they'll be able to connect with a counselor. But unfortunately, a lot of students are using alcohol. Uh, consuming alcohol and, and drug use. You know, that's one of the issues that we're, we're dealing with. Uh, we probably will continue to see, but unfortunately, alcohol use is up among students. We got to keep in mind that a lot of the outlets that our young people had before to burn off steam, to burn off this energy, are no longer available. Basketball courts and, and parks are very, uh, you know, popular in, in the communities because they allow the young people to get together and connect and, 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 like I said, burn off this energy. So the outlets have not been there. Um, the resources have always been limited, but now they're non-existent. Have you found any other helpful way to alleviate some of these negative coping methods? You know what, the, the most effective way is, is providing a platform, uh, a safe space for students to, to just be heard. We just want them to come on in and just talk and just get it off their chest, just to talk about these things, to express their, their pain, to allow them a place to grieve. There's a mindfulness movement that's really helping with a lot of the students. Meditation practices, that really helps a lot of students overcome their, their problems or their emotional difficulties. In terms of policy, what do you need that your department isn't getting? And what could the legislature or the Biden administration do to help black college students? Unfortunately, you know, young black men and young blacks were seen as angry or uh, uncontrollable. Our mental health issues are not really validated from elementary school to middle schools, from a lower level up to a higher level. You know, there needs to be more funding, more resources. 
I really hope that more is done, especially for HBCUs, but just Blacks overall. We really need the resources and funding to help battle this uh, mental health dilemma we're facing. That was Jason Anthony Prendergast. He's in charge of mental health counseling at Florida Memorial University. He spoke with WLRN reporter Wilkin Brutus about how students at the historically Black school are coping with the pressures of COVID-19. Like Prendergast said, a lot of these outlets that Black college students once had are just not there anymore. Xavier McClinton, who we heard from before, he's president of the Student Government Association at FAMU. He says he has found what he calls mind-numbing activities to help him take a mental break from the stress. I play video games now. I I was never really a big video game player, but now after I work throughout the day, go to class, do some schoolwork, do some SGA president work, and then just to take my mind off everything for a while, I'll play video games for an hour or two. NCAA football and Call of Duty are the games he usually plays. I think for him, that's a different kind of therapy. Fair enough. Wilkin, thank you so much for sharing your reporting with us. No problem. Thank you, Jessica. This is Class of COVID-19, a statewide series examining how the pandemic has affected education for the most vulnerable students in Florida. I'm Jessica Bakeman. For the senior class at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, the trauma and isolation of the pandemic have been that much harder. They were freshmen when 17 people were killed and 17 others were injured during the shooting at their school. That was almost three years ago now. In this next story, we hear about what it's like to finish high school during a pandemic after surviving that school shooting. Eden Samara and Nicole Martin work on the yearbook, and Sarah Lerner is their yearbook advisor. She also teaches English. Last year, it did start to feel better. And, you know, I I wouldn't say that we hit our stride and like this was our year, but it, it definitely did feel more like school used to feel. And then the pandemic hit. I just thought to myself, okay, it's just going to be the rest of this year. We're not going to do much. It's going to end, and then we'll start again for my senior year. But evidently, that's not how things played out. My name's Nicole Martin, and I'm a senior at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. I went back to campus one time this year, and when I went back to campus, I immediately felt this stress, and I started to get a little bit, like, dizzy, and I was just... Dizzy. It just felt... Like, I was kind of on edge the entire time I was on campus. And I realized that when I'm at home, I don't feel that. I feel a lot safer, and I feel... I don't feel like I'm in constant danger at home, I guess. 19 years, it feels like a lifetime, but then it also feels like five minutes. My name is Sarah Lerner. This is my seventh year at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School and my 19th year of teaching. After um, the incident at school, the incident at school, we were off. Like, it is such a blur to me. Dizzy, dangerous. My husband and my parents and, you know, friends did a lot to help me and help, you know, keep this ship afloat. My name is Eden Samara. I'm 17 years old and I'm a senior at Stillman Douglas. The first two weeks of quarantine were kind of similar to the first two weeks that we got off of school after the shooting in a way, 
but there is one major difference that definitely defined everything for me and that was being with people. We had each other to lean on and with the pandemic it was complete isolation like quite literally from the very beginning. Now I am the mental health counselor for my children, my own children. I am a sounding board for my students. I have become the IT department in my house. It's still really difficult to not have people around me at all times and not constantly have my friends to turn to and a teacher to go cry to. My dad is a doctor and he worked with all the COVID patients, like to this day he still is. And I would see him come home from work completely exhausted in tears over the people that he was seeing like dying in front of him every day. And at that point I was like, I, I'm not going to think about school right now. Like that's not the main issue happening. And I know that for me going through a traumatic experience, it's also hard to express how you feel. So you just, I mean, you have to like be there and be understanding and be there to listen when they want to talk about it, but also my instinct was more to give him space. On December 11th, I woke up feeling a little congested. I didn't know if it was because the weather changed. I found out that I was positive for COVID. Dizzy, on edge, danger. My husband went shortly after me, then he tested positive, and then all four of us were positive my son and my daughter. It does make me angry. I'm very thankful that we are all okay and our symptoms were so mild and nobody was hospitalized and on a ventilator and like, I know what the alternative could be. I almost think that it's too late for the seniors and maybe for the juniors. I don't think that there is room to make things better for us at this point. At the beginning, I had maybe one or two Zoom classes per week, and the rest of them were just assignments that would be posted on, like, Sunday night. They would be due on Friday. I would do all of my schoolwork for the entire week in the course of probably an hour or two. I don't think that online school has to be this way. This kind of boring, like half asleep, half paying attention, like just get through it until it's over situation. I need for restaurants and other places to close so that people stop spreading this disease. I I think if a lot more priority had been put on the teachers, the teachers would have felt more inclined to teach students. I need teachers to get the vaccine so that we feel safe being on campus and being around the students. More excited to teach their lessons and get onto class every day. And I need all of the students to actively participate. In turn, students would be more engaged. So I don't have to constantly ask if they can hear me because nobody's answering my questions. They'd be more excited to learn. I think this is all doable. I think it all starts at the top and it's all about failed leadership and a systemic problem. You have kids who have completely fallen off the face of the earth. I feel like I've lost so much of my motivation. Listen, I just want you to graduate. Like, I just need you to pass my class. Like, turn in 
an assignment. My motivation and my, my ability to sit down and like complete a task or study for a test. The balance between being available for my students and taking care of myself and being the glue that holds my family together, it weighs very heavily on me. I'm not gonna lie, I... I am struggling. Busy, angry, struggling, I have struggled. It was actually kind of sad to watch some of my more passionate teachers like lose their kind of like spice, like the excitement that they used to have for teaching. I was forced to grow up and live through a lot of things that you don't typically live through at the age of 14. I, I think a lot of high school was centered around just taking care of my mental and physical health because it was just destroyed completely after the shooting. And, I, and I'm just looking forward to college as being that time where I can just be a kid. I just would really like a normal college experience where I have the struggles of a normal college student. I want to be stressed about schoolwork and parties and what to do that night and not stressed about can I go out without hurting somebody or getting somebody sick, or can I go to school without getting hurt? Danger, stress. Eden Samara and Nicole Martin are seniors at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland. Sarah Lerner is their teacher. That story was produced by WLRN Broward County reporter Katie Swatalski-Munoz, with sound design from Merritt Jacob. In the final story of our series, we'll examine the disastrous consequences of isolation for some children with disabilities. It is significantly emotional for these families to see all of these milestones that have been reached kind of slip away. We'll be back with more Class of COVID-19 from Florida Public Media. You can find all of these stories at classofcovid.org. I'm Jessica Bakeman. You're listening to Class of COVID-19, an education crisis for Florida's vulnerable students from Florida Public Media. I'm Jessica Bakeman. Since the start of the pandemic, educators have been raising alarms about what they're calling the COVID slide, the likelihood that kids will fall behind academically because of this massive disruption. For students with disabilities, those potential losses are even greater. School is where they get access to critical therapies that help them do things like move and speak. Robbie Gaffney from WFSU in Tallahassee reports, when students with special needs don't get those therapies, they're guaranteed under federal law and they're isolated from their peers. They could start to lose their ability to communicate. A shaggy black dog is roaming around the Wilson family's patio on this cool evening in Tallahassee. Kiefer is a border collie spaniel mix and she wants attention. But Brady Wilson is consumed with YouTube videos on his iPad. Brady's mom, Denise, is relaxing with him for a while before finishing up tacos for dinner. Girl. Brady, is Kiefer the prettiest one in the family? Yeah. yeah. Brady is 18 and a student at Leon High School. Denise says his transition to online learning last spring was a struggle from the start. 
Brady is a creature of habit. And I think a lot of our kids with special needs, they like routines and they like habits. So in his mind, school happened at school in the building. So it made it really challenging to get him into a school mode when we were here at home. Brady has a rare genetic condition called Pataki Schaefer syndrome. People with this syndrome are often on the autism spectrum and they have developmental delays. Denise says Brady is developmentally age five. During the spring, he received his occupational therapy, but remotely, and his teacher scheduled one-on-one virtual sessions with him. He would get mad at me and say, no school. So I would put the, the laptop right on his lap. And so his teacher would get his attention and then she would kind of slowly cajole him into doing the schoolwork. Still, with Brady away from his peers and teachers for so long, Denise says he began struggling to communicate. The full sentences weren't as complex and weren't as much of a sentence as they were more like two-word sentences. Brady Wilson is looking into the mirror as he uses an electronic toothbrush. He has trouble scrubbing one particular tooth, so his mom has to help him. I recently spent a morning with Brady as he got ready to go to school at Leon High. He went back in person when school buildings reopened in the fall. He walks through the garage and out onto the driveway, where it's still pitch black, and he gets in his dad's car. His mom, Denise. He's very, very healthy, so he doesn't have any issues um, that would cause him to you know, get more ill if he were to contact COVID. Brady's teacher, Mallory McGinnis, says when he first came back to school, he was not wanting to say hardly anything, and we were like really having to drag it out of him. But after a few months back, she says that's turned around. Today in class, he was talking the entire class period, um, doing part of the readings, answering questions, interacting, making jokes. Other students in McGinnis's special education classes have been going through the same thing. She says the lack of face-to-face interactions during the spring caused many students to have trouble communicating past their wants and needs. When you're only interacting with your parents or siblings, that's totally different than how you interact with your peers here at high school. When they didn't have that interaction, I think that that definitely socially um, puts them a little further back and we're having to recoup some of those skills this year. It is significantly um, emotional for these families to to see that all of these milestones that have been reached kind of slip away. Ann Siegel with the advocacy group Disability Rights Florida says families have been calling her group with complaints that their students have been regressing in the absence of face-to-face classes. And I know some of our families are very concerned that their children will never regain the skills that they've lost. Federal law requires that students with disabilities get the individualized services they need, like speech or occupational therapy. But last spring, school buildings were closed and home visits were risky for families and school staff. So many of those vital services didn't happen. Siegel says her group is pushing schools to give double or triple the amount of services to students who lost out on them during the pandemic. We have a lot of kids who've lost 30, 60, 90, 120 minutes a week of these services. And now they're getting them, but they need extra to make up for the time they've lost. Lori Cutting is a researcher at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Her work focuses on people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. 
Cutting says it's important for children with disabilities to learn from their interactions with each other, not just with their parents. So parents will do, you know, sort of a lot of filling in or helping them in terms of their language skills. Let's say a child grabs a toy out of a parent's hand. Cutting explains the parent might say, Noah, that wasn't the nicest way to, to get that toy. How do you think you might do that better? Should we try that again, right? But if a child snatches a toy away from another kid, we all know what happens when that doesn't go well. Her colleague, Sissy Peters, says these real-life situations are hard to simulate at home. Core skills like learning how to share toys or when it's appropriate to interject in a conversation, things that are social norms, a parent might be more forgiving in that situation, whereas a peer might say, why'd you interrupt me? The lack of opportunities for those different exchanges and to learn what might be um, more socially appropriate, that could be lost during this time period. Learning from home wasn't as difficult for Isabel Dietz. She's five years old and goes to kindergarten at DeSoto Trail Elementary in Tallahassee. She has GAND, a rare disorder that affects brain development. She's nonverbal. This is her mom, April. You can see the information come in and it may not come out the way that you expect it to, so some processing type uh, situations. Isabel communicates through hand gestures and visual cards, and she's learning American Sign Language. Her mom lays out three cards on a table. Isabel, what do you play with on a playground? Isabel points to a card with a picture of a swing set. (gasps) That's right! Good job! Just because she can't speak doesn't mean she isn't a social butterfly. For instance, at daycare, I would have to get there like 20 minutes early. She would have to go around to every classroom and say goodbye or hello to all of the kids and all the teachers there. I interviewed April in the family's backyard. Isabel kept pointing at the seesaw to let me know that she wanted me to go on it with her. Okay, three, two, one, go. She said go, that little noise was Oh, April says Isabel did really well learning from home last spring. A huge part of that was the fact that Isabel's speech, occupational, and physical therapists came to her house to work with her. Isabel didn't regress because she was able to get what she needed at home. I'm Robbie Gaffney in Tallahassee. This is Class of COVID-19, a statewide series examining how the pandemic has upended education in Florida. The state legislature will soon gavel in for the first lawmaking session since the coronavirus pandemic transformed the lives of Floridians. We will be following how their decisions affect the most vulnerable students in our state. Join us for our Class of COVID-19 TV program the week of February 22nd to hear some of those conversations. Check your local public television listings to find out when it will air in your area. And you can get the latest updates by signing up for our Class of COVID-19 newsletter. Find that sign-up and all of the stories in our series at classofcovid.org. You've been listening to Class of COVID-19, an education crisis for Florida's vulnerable students, a production of WLRN Public Media in Miami. Reporting also came from WUSF in Tampa, WMFE and WUCF in Orlando, WFSU in Tallahassee, and South Florida PBS. 
I edited this special hour with help from Alicia Zuckerman and Sammy Mack. It was mixed by Merritt Jacob. Special thanks to Tom Hudson, Lance Dixon, and Katie Leprey-Cohen. Funding for Class of COVID-19 was provided in part by the Hammer Family Charitable Foundation and the Education Writers Association. I'm Jessica Bakeman. Thanks for listening and supporting Public Radio.